to gather around God's word together, I always get excited about this, looking into the scriptures together to see what God will have for us. So would you take out a Bible? Uh, I always encourage you to bring your own, but if you didn't, just pull out a pew Bible in front of you, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 18 today, verses 8 and 9, Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. And this is Jesus speaking here. He says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Friends, this is God's word for us today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence here among us. We welcome you into our minds and into our hearts to speak your truth that will set us free. Amen. Well, this is another jaw dropper, isn't it? If, uh, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, <laughs> pluck it out and throw it away. I was um, doing some research for the sermon this week and I Googled something like pluck out your eye, Bible commentary. (laughs) I got a whole bunch of Bible commentaries, but at the bottom of the page, I got an entry that said, affordable, skilled optometry in Jamestown, New York. (laughs) What's going on here? (laughs) This is a little weird, isn't it? Uh, Back in... uh, Former, uh, a former century when William Tyndale, I feel like I'm getting a little reverberation here. Can you hear that? Maybe you got me. Okay, good. Uh, when, when the Bible was first translated into English by William Tyndale, that was a very, very controversial thing for him to do because there were a lot of people, uh, mostly official church people, who thought that the rest of the people should not be allowed to just read the Bible for themselves, that they needed the clergy to tell them how to interpret it. And this was one of the passages that people objected to. There was a friar who gave a famous sermon in Cambridge, England, and he said that uh, the simple reader might mistakenly take a passage such as this literally. And he said... Quote, they might pluck, he might pluck out his eye so that the whole kingdom will be full of blind men to the great decay of the nation and the manifest loss of the king's grace. And thus, by reading the holy scriptures, will the whole kingdom come into confusion. This is dangerous stuff here, folks. You know, I think our problem today is probably not that too many of us will take this literally and start plucking out our eyes. It's that we don't take seriously enough 
what Jesus was trying to get at here. What's going on here? This, this little saying of Jesus must have made a big impression on Jesus' hearers because it's not just here in Matthew, it's also back in Matthew chapter 5 in a slightly different version. We also see it in the Gospel of Mark. So let me just read it again because it's really short or keep it open in your Bible in front of you. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Who says the Bible is boring, right? It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So he's saying if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to not even have it at all. What does he mean by to stumble? That word there, stumble, in Greek is scandalon. It's the the word we get our English word scandal from. Isn't that interesting? If you're your eye or your hand or your foot is causing you as a follower of Jesus to create a scandal in your life, then it's better not to have it at all. If you look at an analysis of that word, scandalon, it means like um, a trap that you would set for an animal by like bending over a tree and you know setting a loop and then the animal wanders into this and the tree snaps up and the noose goes around them. It also can mean like um, a, a rock that you're just walking along and you stumble over and, and fall. Or if somebody's walking by, you remember being in school, walking down the aisle between the desks and someone would stick out their leg, and make you trip. It's that kind of thing. Something that, as you're going along, trips you up or makes you fall over or traps you. It means, Jesus is saying here, essentially, don't, don't let your hand or your foot or your eye lead you into sin. Well, how could it do that? How could your, your eye, for example, lead you into sin? If you read this passage in Matthew 5, it gives you a little more context to, that helps make a little more sense of this. Jesus has been talking here about um, how the, those laws in the Old Testament aren't just about the outside, they're about our heart. And he's saying if you look at a woman lustfully, it's, it's like you have uh, committed adultery in your heart. So he's helping to, uh, to get it back to the issue of the heart here. An example of this is King David with Bathsheba. The trouble began when late one afternoon, the Bible tells us David from his palace roof saw a woman bathing. He saw Bathsheba bathing and he continued to linger on that and think about that and that led him to commit adultery with her. In the message version, um, Eugene Peterson puts this passage like this. If your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owners of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. 
And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the fire of hell. He always makes it real in that, that translation. So Jesus is talking to, here, talking to us here about priorities priorities. It's something that we all wrestle with. How do I spend my time, my attention, my energy? How do I decide what things are the really important things to focus my life on? It seems like there are more and more things competing for our priorities than ever before. And Jesus is just kind of laying it out for us, making it nice and clear. He's saying, look, Don't forget what's most important. Don't forget what's most important because we are so inclined to think that our relationship with God is something we can do successfully kind of at 50% power or 75% of our focus. We're so um, just used to thinking of our relationship with God as something that we can kind of sprinkle on top of our lives to make it a little better, like adding some nice salt to a dish. In fact, in our, in our culture, we're even um, encouraged to think of it as a virtue not to go overboard. I mean, nobody wants to be a religious fanatic, right? That's like one of the worst things you can be in, in our culture. So Jesus is being graphic here. He's being shocking. He wants to get our attention. He wants us to know a saving relationship with God is our first priority in life. No matter who you are, where you are, in in ancient Israel, in, in Bemis Point today, a saving relationship with God is the top priority. And he's even saying it's... It's even more important than, than the good things that, that we have in our lives, like, like our hands and our feet. You might say, well, I like my feet. I like my feet. Man, they are useful. And I would really miss it if I didn't have one of them, or my hand, or my eye. I mean, these are essential things to have. And yet Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. Good things can keep us from the best thing. You notice he's not saying, get rid of bad things. But your hand, your eye, your right eye, he says. That's presumably in that world's thinking your best eye, your right eye. That's the good one. Even that can keep you from missing the best thing. And notice Jesus doesn't just say, cut it off. Or pluck it out. He goes a step further. He says, cut it off, pluck it out, and throw it away. Isn't that interesting? Throw it away. Don't hold on to it and say, wow, I loved that eye. Remember all the happy memories I have with that eye? I'm just going to keep it here on my bureau and think about it and miss it. No, no, no. He says, pluck it out and throw it away. If it's keeping you from God, just get rid of it now. It's never a good idea to think about when you are going to start obeying God, to make a a plan for 
maybe when that might fit into your life in a more convenient way. Jesus tells us when we have that conviction of the Holy Spirit that it's time to obey, we need to do it now. There's a modern-day monk named Theophane, and he's written a whole bunch of modern-day parables. Um, and they're, they're in a little book called Tales from the Magic Monastery. They're kind of strange, interesting little stories, like parables often are, that make us think. And he's written one that goes like this. I had just one desire, to give myself completely to God, so I headed for the monastery. An old monk asked me, what is it you want? I said, I just want to give myself to God completely. I expected him to be gentle, fatherly, but he shouted at me, now! I was stunned. He shouted again, now! And then he reached for a club and came after me. I turned and ran. He kept coming after me, brandishing his club and shouting, now, now. That was years ago. He still follows me wherever I go. Always that stick. Always that now. See, this is urgent. This, this making priorities in our lives is urgent. Good things can keep us from the best things. And most of us aren't neglecting our relationship with God to rob banks and steal and cheat people. What draws us away and tempts us from, from really making God number one in our lives are good things. We're neglecting God to go play hockey or do a good job at our, at our work, to watch football, maybe today, yeah, uh, to love our families, to enjoy nature, to get good grades, to, to do all these good things, and we can all agree we should give up bad things, right? We're probably all there, but it gets hard when Jesus tells us to give up good things, useful things. But sometimes it's our best assets that keep us from a saving relationship with God. Even good things can lead us into bad places. And do we trust God that that transaction of getting rid of some of the good things in our lives, even a hand or a foot or an eye, would be worth the transaction in order to get God in first place in our life. A good thing that keeps us from the best thing can become a bad thing. It becomes an idol. You remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. And the second one is, is almost like it. You, you shall not make for yourselves any idols. Most of us say, well, that's an easy one. I don't have any little gold statues that I worship in my house. But, of course, that's not really what idols means. It means anything that we think we have got to have in order to be okay besides God. If there's anything besides God, we say, if I don't have this in my life, I am not okay. Then that thing has become 
an idol. Even good things can become an idol. And when we put good things in the way of the best thing, that's what sin is. That's serious. So Jesus says, so, so pluck it out. So cut it off and throw it away. You know, when we try to prioritize our human nature, we'll always go right to the place of legalism. That's just what we humans do. We go right to the place of saying, okay, okay, God, so tell me how much or how little I have to do to please you. And I will try to keep my toes on that line. Do I have to go to church every week or is three out of four weeks okay? Do I have to read my Bible every day? Maybe just if it's one verse, is that enough? You know, we try to, we try to find out how little we need to do and then keep our toes on that line. You know, Jesus never gives us that kind of legalistic rule-keeping out. He never lets our relationship with him just become keep the rules. That is not what he has in mind. He always pushes the reality that religion is not about rules. It's about relationship. If you were dating someone and they said to you, tell me exactly how many times a week I need to say I love you. And tell me what's the minimum number of dates we can do, we can go on, you know, every week. How many days can I go between dates? And you'll still you'll still uh, consider me your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Would you say you have a healthy future ahead of you with that person? <laughs> no. We know in relationships it's not about legalism, but priorities come from listening to God, from reading scripture, from learning to recognize God's voice, and from letting it change our hearts to naturally love what God loves. Jesus is pointing here to the difficulty of overcoming sin. It's not a quick and easy struggle here, but it's worth it. It's worth it. He says, it's worth the struggle. I think that's the biggest thing he wants us to get from this. It's worth the struggle. Would you Pluck out your eye to save your life. There was uh, a man named Aaron Ralston who actually had to make a, a choice like this. He was canyoneering in 2003 when he was trapped by a boulder down in a little canyon where no one could find him. And after waiting uh, over five days for someone to come and rescue him, he finally realized he couldn't get his arm out. No one was going to come to rescue him. His only choice was to take his little pocket knife, and he did this, and he cut off his arm to free himself so he could live. You may have seen the movie that was made about it, 127 Hours. You might say, I could never do that. But, you know, a lot of you have undergone drastic operations in the hospital, something that would put your life in the balance, but you said, you know, I have to try. It's worth it to try. So if something is leading you away from God, it is worth it. It is worth it to struggle with that sin and to 
let God get it out of your life. You know, if you grab a lizard by the tail, certain kinds of lizards at least, um, some of them will leave their tail behind in order to get away and save their lives. Uh, I, I don't know if it hurts the lizard or not, but it can't be too good, I would think. But those lizards think it's better to lose my tail than to lose my life. Lobsters do the same thing. If you grab a hold of a lobster's claw, it will drop its claw and, and be able to get away free. Maybe you're a chess player. I don't claim to be a good chess player at all. I'm a terrible chess player, but I've heard of uh, this chess term called a gambit. A gambit is when you sacrifice a pawn or another piece on the chessboard for the sake of the game. In other words, you may lose even your queen, which is one of your really important pieces, but it will be worth it to lose your queen in order to win the game. You know, too often, we want to claim the title of Christian, but live in sin at the same time. I've had people look me right in the eye and say, I believe God wants me to commit adultery because I think God wants me to be happy. I think that's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. He wants us to know that that kind of reasoning endangers our eternal soul. It's like drinking poison and expecting it won't kill you. Proverbs 6.27, I love this verse, says, Can a man scoop flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? (laughs) Don't you love that? (laughs) Don't light a fire on your pants if you don't want them to catch on fire, right? Jesus wants us to know sin is serious. It will kill you. It will kill you. And yet so often we just fool around with it and think it won't kill us. Sin is serious. I know this sounds really serious, but really this is not bad news. This is not bad news. This is not all about, okay, make your life less fun. Work harder, live with pain, and God will be happier with you. I do not want you to hear that as the message of this. That's how religion often gets characterized. And maybe if you are sort of still weighing whether to be in a a, a relationship with God or not, that's the kind of thing you are wrestling with. But I want you to hear Jesus is always about good news. This is good news. This crazy stuff about cutting off your hand or your foot, plucking out your eye, throwing it away, this this is good news. Jesus urges us to get rid of these things, even these good things, so we can be free to take on the abundant life he has waiting for us. To, To say Jesus is negative here is to say, like, my doctor's always negative because she's always talking about people being sick. No, 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 no. He's not negative. He's helping us to get well here. He wants us to get rid of sin so we can be free to take on the abundant life he offers. Paul, the apostle, caught this vision. He put it like this in a letter to the Christians at, uh, at the church in Colossae. He said this, for you died... And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So listen to what he says here. Very similar to what Jesus is getting at. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in those ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. And he makes it easy for us. He gives us a nice list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on your new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. So he tells us what to take off. And then he tells us what we get to put on as followers of Jesus Christ. This is the abundant life. Listen to this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives when we allow him to take off the old stuff, the stuff that's gotten in the way, then he can give us this new stuff, this new clothing of compassion and love and forgiveness and all those other good things. C.S. Lewis, who uh, Pastor Bill mentioned last week, um, has written a lot of great theology books, but also some great fiction books, um, like the Chronicles of Narnia. One of those is called The Great Divorce. I didn't read this book for years because I thought, ugh, a book about divorce, that can't be any fun. But that, that word divorce means divide, like a canyon. And it's a, a story he's written about that a big canyon that separates heaven and hell and it's about a group of people on a bus that is headed for hell but they make a stop in heaven first and there's all these angels around whose job it is to try and get them to stay off the bus and stay there in heaven and not choose hell instead it's a fascinating story a little book so uh, let me recommend it to you so he uh, tells about these people who have gotten, on, uh, gotten off the bus there in heaven. And these people appear thin and almost ghost-like because the atmosphere of heaven is so bright and so strong. And most of them, when they get off the bus, are just intimidated by uh, the, the brightness of heaven and they just go right back to the comfort of their bus. But one person or Lewis calls them ghosts because they seem almost transparent. He is plagued by a talkative red lizard who represents the power of sin and lust that sits on his shoulder. And he ventures out into the plains of heaven and he encounters an angel. The angels are so bright that they kind of hurt the ghost's eyes, but they're there to help them make the transition to heaven. So Lewis describes the meeting of these two, which is a parable about God's invitation to break the power of sin in our lives. 
It goes like this. A mighty angel approached the man and asked, would you like me to make that lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, Uh, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him to be killed, said the angel? You didn't say anything about killing him first, uh, at first. I thought you, I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to to keep it, it in order now, some other day perhaps. There is no other day, said the angel. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if, if you did. No, I will not. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It'll be so, I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Do I have your permission, said the angel to the ghost. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Blast it. Go on. Can't you get it over, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me. God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard. The burning angel closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. Then I saw, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the ghost materialized into a man, not much smaller than the angel. At that same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled, and as it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with a mane and tail of gold. The man, now free from his torment, climbed upon the stallion that had been his sin and rode into the glowing sunrise toward the Savior. Is it worth it? Let's pray. God, you see, you know what's in each of our hearts. Whether we're wrestling with good things that have gotten in the way of putting you first, or whether we're wrestling with sin, and we're not sure we want to give it up. 
speak your words of life deep down into our souls right now that you are worth everything. And give us the courage to give you everything. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Our saving relationship with him was worth not just losing a hand or a foot or an eye. He thought it was worth losing his very life for. What price do we put on his sacrifice? We get to come to this table again and receive the life that he gave away so we could live. What a gift. What an amazing gift. Jesus shared a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he gave thanks to God. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done. After supper, he took the cup again. He gave thanks to God. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood poured out to wash away your sins. When you drink this, remember me. Let's thank him for this wonderful gift. Jesus, you didn't have to do any of this for us, but you did it all. And today we stand in awe and wonder and gratitude that you think we are worth giving everything for. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of just how precious life with you is. As we come and share in this meal today, God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us? Would you meet us in person here at this table? May this bread and this juice be your living body and blood, alive and at work deep down in our souls. We don't understand how that works, God, but we're hungry for you. So Lord, we thank you we praise you. We ask you to form us into people who are like your body out in the world, feeding the hungry, showing your presence in this world that needs to know you're alive. We give you all the honor and glory and praise today and always.